Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 188 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and turns out I'm scared of contortionists. How did you find that out? Seems perfectly reasonable to me. (laughs) Well, yeah, now I've thought about it more, it is reasonable. And to answer your question, Jen, went to the circus on Saturday, big fan of the circus, as you all know, and they had a contortionist and he was so bendy at one point i just shouted no at the stage i just didn't like it and he looked a bit like owen jones so that made it even worse double whammy yeah we just watched him sort of like fascinated horror it was incredible what he could do with his body but gary was like i wouldn't let him in the house i'm like but he'd get in anyway terrifying i'm hannah dunleavy and it turns out I'm not the best carer in the world. Do we get our surprise faces out or do you want to explain (laughs) to us? Yeah, so on Friday, a friend of mine had an eye operation. Don't know what she had done because I didn't ask. And she asked me if I could go and pick her up because she was essentially blind for a day. And so I went to pick her up and I had to walk her back through Cambridge City Centre, which is pretty busy, to get to my car to take her home. And, you know, Cambridge's got really tight, narrow street. She had a hand on my shoulder because she's blind. And I thought, I better walk on the edge of the pavement because if she goes down the pavement, she, like, she might break yeah. her ankle. Because I thought I was This caring. is going well so far. Right. But then it took a really long time to get to the car. So then I started chatting about an interview I had when I got home, which I was quite excited about. And then I just heard this massive thud and this, oh, noise. And I turned around and she'd walked into a lump. <laughs> oh, Hannah. <laughs> and I didn't even, like, have the common decency to, to not laugh because it was so it funny. It is funny, though, isn't it, when someone does that? Was yeah. she okay? Um, yeah, I think she'll have a bruise, but she was mostly okay. This is why I say to people, I don't know why you've called me, because I feel like there was probably someone better in the circumstances. I mean, I think you do do yourself down on a number of reasons why people might come to you for advice, but it does stand that one of the best bits of advice you gave to me when I was very upset and phoned you was to call someone else. It worked. It worked. You did yourself proud. (laughs) On the subject of people falling over, I'm Jen Offord, and I'm getting quite into winter sports, guys. The the watching, not to play. Yeah, not not to participate in, just to watch. I thought for a moment Harwich had a uh, dry ski slope. slope. No, no, (laughs) there is one in Ipswich though. Haven't been to it. Don't plan to. It's more. I don't know if you've ever watched the biathlon. Hannah, I know you're a big fan of the modern pentathlon and the biathlon is basically the same thing, but without horses. On skis? On skis. So they ride a horse on skis? No, they ski and they lie down and they shoot things in the snow and then they get back up and they ski again, like really furiously. the closest you can be to being James Bond, apart from being a spy. That is what modern pentathletes call their sport, just FYI. They say that they are like James Bond. I don't know why, because James Bond doesn't really ride horses or like... Swim. He can though. Or... He can do all those things. Well, I imagine he can. He's obviously good at lots of things, but um... <laughs> he certainly doesn't ride horses that throw him off. No. no, he would punch a horse though if it did. Anyway, not to dwell on that. It's great. I think Hannah, you'd get a lot of enjoyment from watching the biathlon. Where can I currently do that? You can do it on Eurosport, actually, mate. Okay. The uh, biathlon World Cup. I'll send you a link. Coming up. 
I talk to Anne Dowd. No, you shut up. Anne Dowd, it's so exciting. <laughs> I did a little wee. <laughs> About her new film, Mass, Oscar Buzz, Aunt Lydia, and a lot more. Oh, so, so pleased and yet so jealous, but more pleased. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Great noise. <laughs> I chat to Sunita Gale, director of the new documentary Hostile, about the history of immigration to the UK and the hostile environment. And in Jenny Off the Blocks, I'm not making any predictions this week as we catch up on the Australian Open and the Ashes. And in Rated or Dated, we're going to be talking about dads and forgiveness. We're also watching the Royal Tenenbaums. <laughs> <laughs> but first... No! Sorry. <laughs> but first, danger on the move, danger standing still. Can everyone just stop being dangerous, please? It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we are waiting for Sue Gray. Sue Gray is coming. Sue Gray is coming. Do you think she's got all the answers, Jen? No. And even if she does, we're not going to find out. We're just going to get the findings, which will be like, you know, one side of A4 that Boris Johnson's allowed to be shown the light of day. I don't think Sue Gray is going to give us any answers that we want to hear, given that she has been employed by the Prime Minister <laughs> to look into, wait, no, the Prime Minister's indiscretions. I think it's highly unlikely that she'll find anything particularly damaging to him, don't you? I think you're exactly right. <laughs> Do you think she's been handed a list of findings that she will find? Written down on the back of some really fucking expensive wallpaper. Do you think she might find that it's the civil servants in his office and it's it's all their fault? I can't answer your question until Sue Gray tells me that I can. <laughs> oh, Sue. When she was in the careers advisory office as a young girl, I suppose, do you think Sue Gray went, I want my name to be synonymous with some of the most sleazy behaviour of any Tory government in history, please? How do I make this happen? I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah, Sue Gray. Don't even know who she is. Never heard of her before last week. And now she'll be forever in my mind as, you know, the civil servant that oversaw and inquiring to, yeah, it's all it's all horrible, isn't it? It's horrible. And David Davis keeps saying things that are sensible and I don't know what to do with it. Hello, ever so slightly future Mickey from then, popping in to go, Sue Gray's not coming, is she? It's all changed, it's all changed. In fact, the Met Police are coming, but very, very slowly. Which, oddly, given that he's now being investigated by the police, is better news for the Prime Minister. Fucking hell, this shower. Anyway... Shall we move on to something more upbeat, Mick? I'm going to guess no. <laughs> no, no, we can't. But anyway, you may remember a couple of Bush Telegraphs ago, Mick and Hannah spoke about the possible unintended uses of a tracking app designed to keep women safe when they're out and about. Well, it turns out that concerns raised about such apps were absolutely valid, according to a new report compiled by researchers at the universities of Portsmouth and Kent, which was published last week. Research conducted for the report found that the perpetrators of domestic abuse are increasingly using digital and online technologies to monitor, threaten and humiliate their victims. Hmm. 
Lovely stuff. Mm. It's not. According to the report, techniques such as the use of spyware to access their partner's accounts, creation of fake accounts to harass or impersonate victims, unauthorised access of emails and social media, and even smart devices like Alexa and heating apps such as Hive were all being used against victims of domestic abuse, it said. The mind boggles. And that is on top of concerns raised about the misuse of tracking apps, which could enable domestic abusers to keep tabs on their partners. Mm. Now, I don't know if you've seen this one, Mick. You might have seen the terrifying Apple advert on TV. Yes. Which is advising us to use their tech lest we die after falling down a ravine whilst out jogging. It's less of a worry in Walthamstow, if I'm honest with you. I mean, and Harwich, and probably most places in the UK, to be fair. But what the advert says can happen is that your creepy watch can phone the emergency services and (laughs) let them know where you are lying injured. I don't have any actual figures to hand on this, but I will say anecdotally that I know zero women who have fallen down a ravine whilst jogging. While it is a well-known statistic that almost one in three women will be the victims of domestic abuse in their lifetime. Mm -hmm. And this kind of tech-based abuse is not limited to people who are in relationships with their tormentors. The BBC reported last week that it had spoken to a number of women in the US who said they had been tracked by stalkers using their Apple AirTags. Fucking hell. It's terrifying, isn't it? In terms of the scale of the problem, the report found that the police now expect technology to feature in some respects when responding to cases of domestic abuse. And Dr Lisa Segura, Senior Lecturer in Criminology and Cybercrime at the University of Portsmouth and the report's lead author said, as technology becomes ever more ingrained into our everyday lives, hastened further by the COVID pandemic, which has driven many more human interactions and tasks online, technology-facilitated domestic abuse is only going to escalate and increase further the risk of harm unless appropriate interventions in prevention and enforcement occur. You can see it coming though, right? Which is Mm. what Hannah and I said. Anything that gives you a sort of form of control over finding your phone or finding your keys or, you know, controlling the setting of the heating even, someone who wants control over someone else will use that. Yeah, I mean, and I don't know if this is unfair, but like when you and I discussed this story earlier, the first thing you said, and it was the first thing that had sort of come to my mind as well, was that I wonder how many women there are making these apps. Like what mm. proportion of men are responsible for creating these apps because a woman would have thought about those things, basically. Certainly the app that Hannah and I were chatting about mm. the other week and the stuff to do with Apple are created by men. And they're created, I think, with good intentions. But mm. it's a bit like the policy making we saw during COVID. There was no attention to childcare because there were no women in the room. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I'm going to do something I don't usually do and I don't really like people doing, and that is to address a news story, this one is about the AA, that started life as a bit of a hoo-ha on Twitter. I actually noticed the hoo-ha pretty early on, probably like at the who stage, and Mm. messaged Jen and Hannah about it. So Dr. Helen Mott, who, and this will become uh, apparent why I'm mentioning this, is a research consultant who specialises in violence against women. And she tweeted the AA that she was a lone woman whose car had broken down at night and had been told by the AA's call handler that the AA treats lone women and lone men as exactly the same priority in such circumstances because, quote, that's equality. 
to be fair to the AA, the first part is absolutely in line with the 1975 Sex Discrimination Act. But yes, you can bet your fucking life we'll be returning to the smug, male default boorishness of that that's equality (laughs) gotcha in a bit. AA's Twitter doubled down on what the call handler had told Helen, replying that she had, quote, been advised correctly and adding, we don't prioritise based on gender. We do consider the location. So as an example, we would prioritise someone on a motorway over someone in a supermarket car park. Now, having had a succession of old knackered motors break down on several motorways, alone and with friends, I can confirm that it is more dangerous than breaking down in a supermarket car park. And not just for the people or person in the car. So I appreciate that that should definitely fall into how the AA and any other roadside assistance companies make the call on who to rescue first. But having also been frightened as I waited to be rescued on my own in the dark for a long time, even though I'd been told I was a priority, I'd like to think a person's vulnerability and our sex is definitely part of that, along with age, disability and drivers with small children would come into play as well. Because the fact is, men and women don't face equal risks of harm while stranded with their cars. So treating them the same isn't equality. Mm. And as much as we'd really fucking love it if men were no more likely to attack us than we would be likely to attack men, a perfunctory look at the news on Mm. any given day shows us that is not where the world is. And that huge inequality lies not with women, but with men's rates of violence. And so... While I'm not arguing with the Sex Discrimination Act of 1975 by suggesting all lone women on block should be automatically prioritised, it is a staggering example of inadequate sex disaggregated data because it's clear and should have been clear in the AA's communications Mm -hmm. that recognising, naming and accounting for the different risks of lone women over lone men is imperative. And indeed, following a backlash on Twitter, the ha that followed the who, if you like, Mm. The AA did apologise, with company president Edmund King saying, Please rest assured we give priority to anyone at risk. It is illegal for anyone providing goods, facilities or services in the UK to discriminate because you are a man or a woman, but we use common sense to provide priority to those at risk. And more often than not, it will be a lone woman. I don't drive, right? So these are things that I've not necessarily thought very much about. But I have fallen asleep on the night bus before and ended up in the car park of the big Ikea slash massive Tesco in uh, Edmonton uh-huh. at three in the morning. And I can tell you that it's pretty fucking scary yeah. waking up in a supermarket car park. So, uh, yeah. Obviously, most people don't go to the supermarket at three in the morning um, and usually there are people around when you do it. But um, yeah, supermarket car parks can be terrifying places too. And that's it, isn't it? It's the absolute gotcha attitude of, oh, yeah, so no, you wanted was... equality, so this is it. And like, what, it yeah. doesn't work for you? Well, you've asked for this, birds. And you're like, oh, fuck off. I assume it was a guy because I don't think a woman would I'm ever have tweeted that. that. With you. Yep. Really, really does not reflect well that it was more important to them to basically get one over this woman than it was to address the fact that women are fucking scared all the time. Did you have a good day at work, Sebastian, at the AA call centre? I got one over on some bossy bird who wanted us to send a car out to her sharpish because she was on her own. Excellent work, Sebastian. I've never been more proud. Thanks, Mum. Just off to the basement. (laughs) I hope Sebastian goes on a training course. (laughs) Would you like some good news, Mick? Oh, yes, please. Okay, have you ever heard of Mercedes Gleitzer? 
No, but what a name. It's a great name, isn't it? No, me either. Uh, until today, mostly because no one ever talks about the achievements of women. Oh. However, on this very morning that we're chatting, Monday the 24th of January, a blue plaque is being unveiled in Brighton, where Gleitzer lived, in honour of her achievements. Namely, that she was the first British woman to swim the English Channel in 1927. Go Mercedes! Can I get a whoop whoop? Whoop anyway, whoop! In that same year, in the same year, she also became the first person to swim the Strait of Gibraltar. Not first British woman, first person. That's amazing. Yeah. And not only that, she used the money made from the sponsorship of her swims to fund the Mercedes Gleitzer charity, which helped homeless and unemployed people find homes and work. I really like her. She sounds good. She does, doesn't she? Also, as well as the blue plaque, Gleitzer is the subject of a new film, Vindication Swim. <laughs> Vindication Swim? I don't know. I don't really know what, what, how to do the emphasis on that. No, I liked it. I just think it's a weird name for a film. It is a bit, but uh, it's going to be released later this year. So look forward to Vindication Swim. Vindication Swim? After this uh, recording, I'm going to go for a Vindication Run. I don't know what that means. <laughs> While we're on the subject of recognition for top women, I am delighted to tell you that a statue of Mary Anning, the renowned British paleontologist famous for her work in the southwest of England, has now been cast. Hooray! Yeah. The statue, which will be erected in Lyme Regis, hopefully in May, is the result of a campaign started by then 10-year-old, now 13-year-old Dorset schoolgirl Evie Swire. Congratulations, Evie, and everyone who worked on the Mary Anning Rocks campaign. There is so much to love about that story, like mm. just the passion of a little girl and making it a reality and then also the achievements of Mary Annin. But my favourite bit, Jen, which you didn't mention, is there's also a dog in the statue. Big fun of that. There is a dog in the statue. I like the fact that they called it the Mary Annin Rocks campaign and she was a paleontologist. I think that's brilliant. Well done. Also excellent. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we count the very many goals scored by sexism. And so to the sun, which may seem an easy target for this section. So let's start with a positive. We're talking about a story the sun ran on Chelsea's 4-2 win over West Ham in the FA Women's League Cup. So, you know, small wins that the biggest red top has not only accepted women playing football as a thing, but has also given it column inches. Sounds good to me particularly given a recent study led by Durham University in which researchers found that more than two-thirds of male football fans harbour hostile, sexist or misogynistic attitudes towards women's sport. That was irrespective of the survey doer's age. Mm. Are you surprised by that, Jen? No, <laughs> not at all, no. Oh, sadly, no. In fact, 68% of the 1,950 men polled suggested women should not participate in sport at all. Or, you know, if they did, they'd be better suited to more feminine pursuits such as athletics rather than football. Do you know what? I feel like the sting for this section has never been more appropriate. Yeah, we will pay. equal, are you? Furthermore, media reporting of women's sports was seen as positive discrimination or PC nonsense. <laughs> 
And yeah, I am going to make the leap and feel free to at me if you think it's unfair that the Venn diagram of these bellends and readers of the sun is a perfect circle. And so back to what the sun termed an exclusive. <laughs> and trust me, that isn't the last time I'll be using air quotes around a word here on the Chelsea West Ham match in which Danish striker Peniel Harder netted three of Chelsea's four goals with Erin Cuthbert nailing the other. The report suggested mm. that the score sheet of harder, harder, Cuthbert, harder sounded like posh people having sex, which I think we can all agree is a real side clutcher. And not even the journalist's own, given he nicked it from social media. That's how you get exclusives these days, Jen. Mm. Mm. And yet, you know, I can remember headlines such as Keegan Phil Schmeichel's gap with Seaman. And when most coverage of the beautiful game is treated with reverence to the point of deadly seriousness, the occasional lol is, you know, it's lol. But the huge difference is we are only just starting to see women's football taken seriously and getting any sort of media coverage outside of Jenny off the books, obviously. And as Jen's mentioned time and time again on Jenny off the books, it is a far from level playing field and media coverage leads to more fans, leads to more cash, leads to more you get my gist. Anyway, I'm going to leave it to Erin Cuthbert herself to explain exactly why that article is horseshit, because she did so beautifully on Twitter, saying, To actually run with a story like this is extremely disturbing and embarrassing. I wish people reported on the actual match reports and women's football with the same level of enthusiasm. I just want to go back to that exclusive for a minute, <laughs> if I may. Like, what have you done today to make you feel proud? How many years at Oxford for that, you fucking twats? Come on. Hello, Hannah here. Just to do a wee intro to this interview, because when you have Anne out for 30 minutes, you don't mess around with the admin during the interview. So we're going to be talking about Mass, which is Anne's new film, which has just been released on Sky Cinema and at some cinemas around the country. The entire film is just one meeting that takes place between two couples years after a school shooting. Martha Plimpton and Jason Isaacs play a couple whose son was killed and Anne and Reed Burney play the parents of the boy that shot him. If you get the chance to watch it, I would, because it's terrific. I'm going to leap in and talk about Mass. It's incredible. It is incredible. It's fascinating. It's heartbreaking. It, it was a pretty intense experience to watch. I'm guessing it was a pretty intense experience to make too. Yes. How did you go about preparing for it? Because it's so unusual. You're, you're all just in the same room. Do you prepare for it yeah. maybe like you would a stage play? Well, you know, we had two and a half days of rehearsal, which probably sounds shockingly short. But what we did... The first time we, we were together and the director and writer, we worked through text just to make sure we were, were all on the same page, knew what the words were. If there were bumps, Fran was very collaborative. But the most important thing that happened in that room, well, as important, surely, is that we came to trust one another mm. very quickly, which is essential for any work, but absolutely essential for something like Mass. And that was a very wonderful thing that we trusted one another. Also, we just got on well. It's not that we all had the same opinions about anything. No, we had a lot of different and we worked through them. But we became close, very close. And we all knew 
what we were signing up for. There was no confusion on anyone's part about what this would involve from each of us. We've been around a long time, all the four of us, and we've had a lot of stage experience. So in my opinion, the theater gives you your sea legs. That's the test of bravery. And so if you do enough of that, you have some notion of what it means to stay at the table. I say that literally and figuratively. It's tough, stay, take a breath. And after those two and a half days, we went our separate ways. And we met three weeks later to begin filming. In that time between, each actor, of course, works differently. I spent a lot of time alone, sitting with the text. Always starts with text, as you know. Seeing how it landed for me. Just letting my mind and heart, if you will, roam around. Thankfully, after many, many years... I realize you don't have to connect all the dots. In fact, let it alone. I was a pre-med student in college for four years, and the way you succeed is that you study to the point of insanity. (laughs) And you then study again. And so I sort of applied those rules when I went to acting school instead of to medical school. Got to know these words, got to know what she's doing, where she came from, what her family was, everything. Well, no, acting, in fact, does not work that way. It is not there to be forced or shoved. I was very curious about Linda. I admire her tremendously because when a life breaks like that, you can rebuild the walls and insist that you did the best you could, blah, blah. But she does not do that. She stays broken until she can get up. Mm. And so when she goes to the room, she has no anticipation or expectation of forgiveness. She genuinely wants to offer anything that can bring peace, some healing. So just did a lot of that. And then when we got there, we all knew what we were doing, meaning we're going to give it everything we have. We're going to stay in that level of grief. We're going to trust that we can. It was a very blessed, if you will forgive the phrase, or sacred experience. The spiritual element of acting, I'm a big believer in because in the playing of this role, I was astounded at the level of generosity of character to actor. In the places where I didn't know what I was doing, she she had me. She just stepped right in, right there. And I think everybody in their own way because as we all know, writers, actors, we are all different. We could give each other space. We laughed between takes to the point of weeping, perhaps as a release, I don't know. But then we all could jump, drop in mm. you know, eight days around the table. We did it in sequence, which is crucial mm. in this. Everything before and after the room was shot the first four days. Both you and Martha Plimpton are just incredible in this. I think if it were a stage play, all of the nuance, all of the the tiny expressions that come across your faces, you know, that tell you so much about how you're interacting between the couples, but also within the couples, that that, that would be that would be lost on stage, I think. So I think the, yes, the cinema is exactly the place for it. 
You're absolutely right. They are both victims, but they are different sorts of victims. So I, I wonder why Linda for you? What drew you to Linda as a character as opposed to Gail? Well, I, I was drawn to her immediately. I am comfortable with grief personally, not to the degree that she mm. found her way through, but I just felt a connection to her and that she could move forward after what happened. You know, bad enough, you lose your son. All of us parents, well, please, God, don't ever let it happen. But he also caused the death of others and families destroyed in the way they were before for, forever. Their, their lives will never be the same. But then add to that, my son was in such despair that he took his own life at the end of it all. And I missed it. Mm. That's a woman worth knowing. Yeah, I agree. And I just wanted to get to know her and I admire her and I learned things from her for sure. And the thing in this film, you know, it is specifically about the gun situation, which in your country, you just must wonder what in the yeah, world. It's an awesome mystery to us. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a mystery to mm. us too, the, the lunacy around it. But more importantly, the message of this film, I believe, crosses, it's a universal thing, this notion of the burdens we carry mm. that we, we can't find a way through, whether it's grief, rage, blame, guilt, and confusion. The world is so different now. And it brings up anxieties we didn't even know we had mm. beyond our health. Old, old anxieties for me. I can't. I'm amazed. But the notion, and it's happened to me a few times in my life where I've been able to drop the armor enough to actually listen to the person in front of us. Amazing things happen. We connect. I wish there was a better word. Than connect. It's what human beings are meant to do. We are of the same something. We all have human hearts. And something happens when you put down and you are ready to listen and to stay at the table. That's the message of the film. Mm. Healing is possible. And forgiveness. And I, I always thought, well, it's not a play. I mean, if you were to ask Jason Isaacs, he's very dear, I adore him. You were to ask him, you know, it's a play. He would say it's a play about forgiveness, and I would push back on that because it's such a tall order. If you say to someone, "All right, we're going to sit down, and then what we're going to do is, in the end, forgive each other," it is a process. Martha pointed that out uh, in the way she spoke of it as well. It's about just trying to connect with each other, and then the next step naturally happens. Mm-hmm. Imagine being those parents, you know, how did you miss it? Yeah. You know, I, I can't. And, and it's, you know, our wonderful writer and director, Fran Kranz. It's just astonishing. Oh. He said, you know, he studied the Truth and Reconciliation Project when he, Desmond Tutu. And he said he was scared because he didn't think he could be that human being that could go and sit at that table and forgive. And he carried that kind of with him way past school, college. He always wondered, would I ever be able to be that person? And then a few years ago, he happened to be listening. It was a mother who had lost a child, and he had to pull over. He had a little child. 
he was completely overcome. So that's what began the story. What's interesting about it to me is that it's almost entirely devoid of politics. And it's just about yeah. human beings. And yeah. we don't have yes. that. I mean, like you pointed out, for us, it's it's this strange, mad world that we can never quite understand. But the conversation after a school shooting always goes down a certain track, be that gun control or, or people saying it's a mental health issue. And this kind of eschews all of that and says, let's not talk about why it happened, but let's talk about what the effect of when it happens is on people. I, I think that's what I took from, from it. It's it's more yeah, about that's such a Yeah, a beautiful, because, yeah. you know, Jason's character tries to go down that yeah. lane and did so in the last six years of his life. Doesn't lead to any release. You're right, just... Put that away. Yeah. Put that away. But you know what's interesting? The groups fighting the mass shootings and wanting gun control. Those groups didn't want to suggest this film, how does one say? Mm. Because it doesn't take a political stand. They would want a political statement right. to be made. So they did not attach to this film. Oh, which is very interesting. interesting. Isn't yeah. it? Isn't it? Now, talking of intense emotional experiences, and there's quite a lot of Oscar buzz around this film. What's what's that like as an experience to go through? Well, I'm telling you, uh, I'd like to think I'm that person who just says, oh, you know, whatever happens. Yeah. <laughs> oh, let it go. I do have a goal to try to keep balance around it because it's all, you know, having won an Emmy I mean, I'll never forget it. It's a very special honor, you know? Mm. But then you see how many are not recognized whose work is exceptional. And you realize, you know, you got to keep a balance. You just kind of have yeah. to let it go. And I remind myself, uh, I love saying this and hope some days I can do it, actually. Just focus on the work. The other stuff, you don't have control over it. Yeah. And I say to myself, so come on now out of that dark cloud of anxiety and let's do something. Let's, let's remember what this whole thing's about because you can forget oddly when you are privileged enough to do a film like this, which it is. And if you get caught up in other things, you forget the beauty of it. Mm. The experience itself was remarkable. Well, I would say that you you did win an Emmy, but you were overdue an Emmy. And I think I might get onto that point in, in a bit. That's very kind of you. What I find really interesting about Linda is you tend to play women that I look at and I think, what happened to you that made you like that? Who hurt you? Yeah, great question. <laughs> and Linda's almost the opposite. Linda, you know what happened to her. And then you find out, you work out what it's done to her. So if we could talk about some of your other roles, I mean, I'm going to have to start with Patty Levin because, oh man, I love The Leftovers so much. And Patty is incredible because I both love her and hate her at the same time. And I wondered, given that she was kind of pivotal to your career in recent years, how do you feel about Patty? I'll just out myself right away. I read it. I was going to go in an audition and I said, what is this? 2% of the world disappears? Please. <laughs> now we're in sci-fi and I'm a kitchen sink kind of gal, you know, yeah. I, less so now, thank God. So I look back and I remember saying it to my manager and, and agent and they're kind of smart. So there was a long pause in which they must have been thinking, didn't know she was that dumb. 
so they tried to sort of because Damon Lindelof is astonishing. Yeah, he, he has a mind and a heart. Oh, he is so lovely and so good. Anyway, so they said, well, it is shooting in New York, so it would be an HBO series in New York. So I read it again. I thought, huh, it's just kind of interesting. But what is this no talking business? <laughs> when I auditioned, I thought, oh, I'm kind of liking this. How do you audition when, when Patty doesn't say anything? There are a few lines I, I was able to say. Well, let me tell you, when you do not speak in a room, you're in total charge of it. Nobody knows what to do with you. Yeah. yeah. So you, you rule the day. And it's fascinating to be on a set in a scene and not speak. Write it out. I loved it. Because at first, you know, you better know what you're thinking because that's what's important. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? If you stand there and you don't know what you're thinking, you're going to look like an idiot. It's like, what's she doing there? So I learned a whole bunch about her, about that. And then come to find out, I get a lovely email from Damon Lindelof telling me that she's going to die. I had no idea how attached I had become to it. It was like, wait a second, what? What do you mean? I, I think I cried for three days or some such. <laughs> and somehow I came back in season two. I loved it. Oh, season then, two. She didn't shut up. It was the opposite. She never shut up in season two. She was constantly oh, chatting. It was glorious. And I would write to Damon and I'd say, what is she? I thought she took care of her life. Like, in other words, ended it. So what's she doing in the truck with Kevin? And he would write back the best answers. Like, that's what she wants to know. Mm-hmm. So he'll set you on the path. You know what I mean? You're on the right track. Yeah. What am I doing here? Oh, I love that role. Loved it. Made very close friend with Justin. Because when you go through that stuff, you're just like, we're for life, babe. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Let's talk about some other ones. I'm going to have to ask you about Aunt Lydia, uh, which is probably the role that you're most famous for. Now, having played Aunt Lydia for as long as you have, I think you probably understand her better than maybe anyone except Margaret Atwood. So have you come to understand Lydia's decisions? Margaret would answer differently because we've had the conversation, love her. You know, the way we kind of played it in the first, well, in, in, in the series is, of course, I, in my mind, I, I, Bruce Miller, our writer, told me, you know, she's probably a teacher. And that made so much sense. Mm. So I went back to, you know, I was educated by Catholic nuns. Now, they were never anything resembling Lydia. I have two aunts who were some of those Catholic nuns. But the notion of work ethic. If I was at basketball practice down the hall in eighth grade and I hadn't done my chore correctly, nuns right there dragging you back. What's that on the floor? Oh, I missed that. Yeah, get it. The notion, you're not special. You have a task, you do it, start to finish. To the best of your ability, no exceptions. But anyway, the notion she, that I thought, well, bet she came from a mother wasn't present, father very, very religious, cold, ashamed uh, about sex, which religion can do in about 30 seconds, certainly the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so she just kind of was raised in a way on shame. And I imagined her in the church basement with the other Gilead people. The world's falling apart. I teach uh, girls in high school and, and they're, the language, they're, 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 the sexual behavior, it's out of control. We've got to do something. You know, the birth rate drastically falling. And so it came from, from that attachment to God, to religion, to 
all the rules you know and you and you you travel in that narrow alleyway and that's it despite evidence that's just well wait a minute no no the door those are shut walls are tall and strong mm. now you ask margaret and then we find this out in the testaments lydia is a, a a family court judge didn't come from a particularly religious family none of the history i gave it at all when gilead took over they did it so quickly with no warning they dragged us all out of the the the, the courtroom and all of that and mm. took us to a some kind of field ball a game you know big field and if you said no to what they were asking you to do you were shocked no persuasion nothing just you're dead now she's quick lydia caught on very quickly you want to live mm. you want to survive this is what's going to happen and she's not one to take second place it's not in her so she also knows you don't only do do what they say you do it to the exponential yeah so Margaret would argue that it's about survival. But the wonderful thing about testaments is where it goes and what happens. It's, it's kind of great in terms of Lydia. Now, we were just talking about nuns. You've played at least two nuns in your career. I have. Yeah. You were Sister Aloysius in doubt on stage. Oh, and also, loved it. also recently you were Sister Margarita in Lambs of God, which is, again, just an incredibly off-the-wall, but brilliant series. I loved it. The imaginations that put that together. Sarah Lambert, Jeffrey Walker. I don't have words. And the DP and the crew. Unbelievable. I was telling my colleague, Mickey, about it. And she said, what's it about? And I said, oh, it's about these nuns. And then they go feral. And she said, let me stop you there. That's enough information. I'm going to watch it. Feral nuns. I think that's to be the smallest... I wouldn't even have thought of that word. That's the right word. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's incredible. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. Really brilliant. There was something else that I wanted to ask you, a past role that I was was really interested in. I'm enjoying this so much. Oh, great. Now, way back in 1987, you won a Jeff Award for the Chicago production of A Normal Heart, which is an incredible play. And it's an incredible play in 2022. But given that you were still in the eye of the storm in 1987 of the AIDS pandemic. I just wonder what your experience of making it was like. That's such a brilliant question because, first of all, God, did you do some homework? <laughs> That's like a <laughs> billion years ago. Um, you know what was remarkable about it? it? Certainly, that we were in the middle of this horrible that affected so, I mean, the gay community uh, and the weeping in the audience because they're losing people they love and in fact scott get his last name so wonderful wonderful actor playwright member of the company we were in next theater company died of aids but at any rate i remember a woman we did a q a and she raised her hand and she got up she was shaken she said i have always taught my children my grandchildren that love is between a man and a woman and then she started to break down and she said, and now I know otherwise that love is love. And I am going straight home to teach them. I mean. Wow. And here she was trying to keep it together because something phenomenal happened to her in that room. That was remarkable. But every single night, because you were talking to people who were suffering so badly. 
Mm. And this put a voice to it, put something we could share together, the grief and the loss and uh, getting it done. Um, It's challenging for sure, but it was a very, very moving experience every, every night. It's terrific because it's also such a furious play and it should be angry. And it's, yeah, I think it's incredible. I love it. Yeah, I don't know how good I was in it. I mean, that was very Well, you won an award. <laughs> yeah, that that was a very, very nice then. I have one last question for you. And that is that you know, when I was younger, when I was growing up, it was perfectly possible for a man, a male actor, to become famous in his 50s, 60s, you know, you know, Morgan Freeman seemingly came from nowhere, you know, these jobbing actors. And that wasn't something that happened to women particularly. But I would say in recent years, you know, Margot Martindale, J. Smith Cameron, currently in succession, and yourself over the age of 50, and your career is better than it ever was. Does that mean it's getting better to be an actress over 50 or... Is that because television, is it television that's improved? Well, there's so much more content, thank God. The writing, the, the shows, there are just so much, so much more opportunity. Yes, for sure. And also, I don't know, I'm always afraid to talk about this, but women just got stronger and stronger in their pushback. You know, I remember being told, and I wasn't like a gorgeous actress with the body and the face and the hair and the whole business. They weren't going to hire me for my looks, let's just put it that way. But I remember being told, you know, once you're out of your 20s, it's like, what? I guess a healthy dose of denial and and desire, you know, not going down that lane. I was working in a pet shop when I was pregnant with my first kid at 35. Didn't have a dime to our names. Never occurred to me to worry. You know what I'm saying? It was just that it's going to happen. That's all. And it did. (laughs) I was going to my waitress job in Chicago and, you know, wearing my black pants and my tie and my white shirt. I was like, I can't believe I'm going here. And, and as I was going, I looked at a theater and there was a movie theater opening. Big deal. Huge. Limousines, lights, everything. And it was for a film called About Last Night. And it was starring my classmate at DePaul, Goodman. I was like, What? Wonderful actress, Elizabeth Perkins. Yeah. I just said, what's happening here? And I was completely, I said, how is it that I am going, jealousy doesn't even cover it, envy, whatever, (laughs) great. So I I went, I got through the, I'm sure I, I think I've shut down a far number of restaurants just from bad attitude, wouldn't surprise me. Anyway, got home and I was ranting on the porch. Why is it taking so long? What's going on? And then a, Huge sort of calm came over me. And I know it sounds like voodoo, but a voice, inner. It will all be fine. You will be in your 50s. You will be 56. That's exactly when compliance happened. Really? Oh, my God, compliance is amazing. (laughs) You make so much great stuff. Genuinely, so much great stuff. I'm so fortunate. I mean, it came my way. But And then I remember thinking, my 50s, I was in my 30s. I am not waiting to my... But then just, you know, day by day, you just... Every job felt like a triumph. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, I'm delighted it did. Because like I say, I could I could talk to you. There's Freaks and Geeks. I adore you. Were in oh, that. I love her. <laughs> the fr- oh, my God. They were fan- They were all like 20. Yeah. The writers. Yeah. 
I mean, the, wait a the minute. The first what? series of True Detective, you're in it only for a small amount of time, but Mandy, you make an impression. <laughs> That's incredible. Love that. So lucky. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. So much terrific stuff. Thank you so much for your time, Thank Anne. You. I'm absolutely delighted. You've made my day. And just apologize to your friend on my behalf. I will. <laughs> I'm going to explain that story at the top so people know why. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> I'm joined by Sunita Gale, director of the new BAFTA long-listed documentary, Hostile. Hello, Sunita. Hello, Jen. Nice to meet you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And nice to meet you too. I have just finished this morning watching your film, Hostile, which is really, really interesting. Would you mind just telling us to start off with a little bit about Hostile? Yeah, sure. So Hostile is a film about the hostile environment It's a term that was coined by Theresa May in 2012. Hostile environment really is a set of policies that are really brought in place to make life extremely unbearable for anyone that's here as a migrant uh, living here or anyone that's thinking about coming here. So it really is a set of policies that's put in place to restrict the rights of migrants, restrict their rights to work, restrict their rights to access the welfare state, restrict their rights to live a normal life in our country. It is estimated that around 1.7 million people are subject to the hostile environment in our country, and around 10% of those are children. So it's pretty shocking. And the film really is about four participants that are subject to the hostile environment mainly from the Black and Asian community. And the film really brings to the forefront the ideas, the legislation, the policy, the narrative around the hostile environment, how it's affecting individuals, the history of the hostile environment, and why we have a hostile environment today. We're talking about people who may have lived here their entire lives and have no actual connection to the place from which they migrated. And obviously the most famous example of this in recent years is is the Windrush scandal. But also, presumably, that hostile environment has a knock-on effect. Yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, with the Windrush scandal that was broken in 2017, we had people here that came post-Second World War, people that came from the Commonwealth, people that came from Jamaica, people that came from India, people that came here that felt that they were coming here to better their lives, to create a home for themselves. And when they came here, they thought that they had been granted citizenship, that they were allowed to be here, live freely, work, contribute economically and culturally to our society, only to find out five decades later, in the case of the Windrush generation, that their landing cards had been destroyed that they, there was no identification of them, no recollection of them. There was no trace, no paper trail. And to find out that there was just nothing to identify them to be part of this country, they were then being asked to go home. So in that case, people hadn't been back to their countries for over five decades. And I think that really came to the forefront, as I said, in 2017. And I I think you're right. I mean, people that are subject to the hostile environment are people that came here from, you know, post-empire, from from the Commonwealth, came to our country, felt that they were here, living here and contributing economically and culturally, and that they could be here freely, only to learn that they couldn't. And then you've got the children of those individuals and the grandchildren. So the knock-on effect is not just with 
them, but also with their children that potentially now they are in a precarious situation where they are being told to go home. So it is targeted mainly at migrants. But what we've seen recently, Jen, with the Nationality and Borders Bill, it's now opening up and it's now targeting people that have British citizenship, but are eligible for dual citizenship and are now being told, well, if you're eligible for dual citizenship or you have dual citizenship, there is a possibility that you could be deported and sent back home to the other country that you have citizenship with. So what I found with my filmmaking was the hostility was extending beyond the migrants that have come here to this country. I mean, that is absolutely chilling. And I did not know anything about that. It's a bill, so it's not an act of parliament yet. So is that a recent development? It's actually now being debated Mm -hmm. in the Lords. And I think now there are aspects of the bill that are now being considered. And part of that bill is Clause 9, Section 9 of the bill, which is relatable to that, the dual citizenship. And I think there are other restrictions that are being placed on this this bill in regards to asylum seekers and refugees. And, you know, we ask so many questions within the film that how much are we going to restrict human beings? There is just no empathy, no understanding, no care and consideration as to what people are going through, where they have come from, how they have contributed economically and culturally to our country. And that whole rhetoric around Brexit Mm. and campaign and go home just permeates through all of this. It just sickens me to the core that this Mm. is happening. So can I ask you, because you are second generation migrant yourself your parents came to the UK from India and built a life for themselves here is that what drew you to to make this film yeah I guess it was when my parents came from India my mother particularly was a was a victim of partition you know a million people died during that time 15 million people were displaced she lived in Lahore and she lived amongst Sikh Hindus and Muslims they had a business she was a child, life was good. And at the age of 12, her life changed in August 1947, when she walked for 16 days and for 180 kilometers to India, to New India, and lived in a mud hut. And as a child, she would tell me the stories of that journey and what it was like to leave her life and to start anew and how they lost absolutely everything, how she saw murder and death and just bloodshed on a large scale during that walk and I think it was something that she carried her entire life and something that she spoke to me about quite deeply and quite profoundly Mm. and I guess when the pandemic struck my heritage my history and my parents and how they the sacrifices they made for me came to the forefront because We have a global pandemic. We're relying heavily on our local community, the local corner shop, the taxi driver, the NHS worker. These become our community. These individuals become our reliance. And and that took me right back to my childhood where I lived in a Sikh community, uh, a white working class, a black working class community. And my father had a convenience store. My parents worked in a factory. And those memories of my childhood just gave me the motivation to go out there and make a film about what was happening in, in, a, in the height of a pandemic 
and what was happening on the ground within migrant communities. And I felt like I had to do it. It was like my calling. I want to talk a little bit about one of the things that you cover in the film, which is the contribution made by immigrants to the NHS. What you sort of do in the film is you explore the link between the hostile environment and the privatisation of the NHS, which was very interesting to me because obviously that's something that we're all thinking about sort of periodically and, and probably worrying about a little bit. So I wondered if you could explain that to me a little bit about, about that link between the two. I guess it was like during the pandemic, there were so many protests, hmm. you know, protesting for black lives, protesting for pay equality in the NHS, you know, protesting for housing rights. And I, I went to those protests. So on the ground, whilst I was filming my film, I was going out and protesting and listening to what was happening. Simultaneously, I met Farouk, NHS worker who is a participant in the film, who during the height of the pandemic lost his job because he was subject to the hostile environment. And I guess, you know, those links happen because here we have Farouk, an NHS worker that came here as a student 17 years ago and hasn't been able to get his settled status in the UK, has paid tens of thousands of pounds to renew applications, still on a limited leave to remain, can't get his indefinite leave to remain, and he feels like nobody wants him here, that they just want him to go home. In the same time, we have got tens of thousands of job shortages within the NHS, the NHS is at breaking point. The NHS workers that work for the NHS are struggling with pay. We've got people like Farouk that are here lawfully, legally, trying to get their settled status and in debt because they can't and not working for the NHS anymore. And then we've got this whole idea of privatisation. I tell you why they are not giving people like Farouk jobs for the NHS because they're trying to privatise the NHS. Let's just strip the NHS away from all of its assets, including staff. Let's just break the NHS. So inevitably what will happen is that we will have to privatise the NHS because the NHS doesn't have resources. The NHS doesn't have staffing. The NHS is broke. This is the narrative and the language that we've been told. But in fact, there is a staff shortage. So why on earth are you not letting the migrant communities that are here working for the NHS stay here and continue working here and give them the settled status that they deserve. It's an argument I've not heard before, but it's an interesting one. And of course, it's it's absolutely right that immigrants or migrant workers are an asset of the NHS. And of course, everyone knows if you want to do away with something, you strip it of its assets, you absolutely. ground it down. That's exactly what, what's going to happen if we do not bring issues like the hostile environment to the forefront and put it into the public forum into the public domain into the public narrative so that people know this is happening and actually why we need to start raising awareness about what's happening within our communities so that we don't have a, an arrangement that's been run by a political party or a system that want to privatize the nhs because that that's one concern of mine is the future of the nhs a big concern of mine is a future future of our country but the future sure. of our beloved nhs so there is a myth, essentially, that immigrants come in, you know, steal our benefits, etc., etc., and basically use our resources, which means that we then have less resources. And it is a myth, and for a number of reasons, obviously, 
a lot of the people who come here as migrants are in fact working and contributing to the taxation so they are making a economic contribution to the country but also there is a law no recourse to public funding which actually was brought in by the new labor government in 1999 it is a particularly heinous policy. It's pretty vicious. Can you tell us a little bit about it? No recourse to public funds is a condition that's stamped on people's visa. No, it's stamped on people's visa that are on a tier one to tier four visa and also people that have limited leave to remain. So fine, when you come to this country, you are aware that you have no recourse to public funds. So no recourse to public funds, then you don't get universal credit. You can't get disability living allowance. You can't get carer's allowance, child benefit, housing support, housing benefit. You can't access free school meals if you're subject to no recourse to public funds. People that are here that are paying taxes, that are contributing to our country, those that are on limited leave to remain have no recourse to public funds. People that are here on a tier one to tier four visa that can only work 20 hours a week, like a student that's in our film, have no recourse to public funds. But I think what the pandemic has highlighted, that in a global crisis where people like students are losing their job because all of the restaurants are shut, when you have no recourse to public funds, you have nothing. Mm. So you are relying on food banks. You, you, you can't access certain sort of medical benefits you can't there's no money there's no access for anything you know and I think Farouk sort of says it in the film you know how do I pay for my nappies how do I pay for my food you know there's absolutely no support there at all and I think there is this myth that immigrants or migrants are here sponging off our system well they're actually not they're here contributing putting more in than what has been taken out significantly more in and I think the pandemic brought this sort of policy to the forefront and politicians like Stephen Timms, you know, question the prime minister about it and sort of say, well, hang on, what's going to happen to all of these people, these 1.4 million people that are struggling and suffering at the hands of no recourse to public funds? There's an incredible moment in the film, which I've never seen before, which I'm surprised didn't garner more press attention at the time, where Stephen Timms, the Labour MP who you just spoke of, then talks to Boris Johnson in, I think it's some sort of select committee hearing or, or something like that, and, and, and brings up the no recourse to public funds. And Boris Johnson does not even know what this policy is. It's an astonishing moment when he sort of like blusters his way through it. Absolutely. And that was a year and a half ago. And he, Stephen Timms is still waiting for an answer. So Prime Minister Boris Johnson, if you are listening, please may we have an answer. But, you know, it's it's you're right. He didn't know what that policy was and he didn't know the impact that policy was having on so many individuals. And he has been quizzed and questioned about it since we still don't have an answer. Historically, our immigration policy has always sort of predominantly focused on non-white immigrants. And we talk about people from the Commonwealth who were invited to, to come to the UK and, and fill vacancies in, in jobs to rebuild after the wars. But that's not the full picture, is it? Because there was actually quite a lot of discussions at the time that were trying to prevent this happening as well. I wondered if you could tell me why you think historically we have shown hostility towards non-white immigrants particularly? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the, this goes back to the, the legacy of empire and post-Second World War when people came here to build a life for themselves and build Britain again. And I think that, the you know, in 1913, I think empire occupied 23%, the British Empire, 23% of our planet. And that's a significant number where British identity had so much control and then all of a sudden, we have an influx of migrants from those countries to our country. And people are thinking, well, what do we do with them? What, you know, what, 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 what is their identity? What is our identity? And what does that mean? And I think when I was looking at the history of the hostile environment, it took me back to empire and sort of, you know, whether that sort of nostalgia of our colonial past was breathing into modern day policy breathing into the narrative around Brexit. The whole campaigning was about take bank control. The whole narrative was about migrants sponging off our system. I think I just want to say a quote from Afua Hirsch. The ghosts of the British Empire are everywhere in modern Britain and nowhere more so than in the dream of Brexit. The reason why I went back to empire was to trace, well, actually, we haven't done good historically and we continue to not do good with the policies and the legislations and the bills that are being passed today. So we went from like empire to all of the different acts in the 60s and the 70s that have been put in place to, to 2012 and the hostile environment to Brexit in 2016. And now we're in 2022 and we have something called the Nationality and Borders Bill. I mean, when does it stop this whole kind of beating down of the migrant, beating down of the individual that came from the British Empire. It's just so hurtful and so damaging. And I hope with the film, we will highlight issues and maybe bring about some good and transform the ideas of many in our society. And I also think that's why I ended the film with the Noam Chomsky quote was that the, the real war is the war on people. Yes, and yes. just when the, the powers that be are doing things over here, other things are happening over there. And that's where you need to be looking. You need to really be looking at what's really happening and be open and be mindful. You know, it's also the same with parties in Downing Street. Whilst mm, parties yeah. are happening, bills are being passed. Legislation is happening. And I think that's also been a tool for us to think about the parties. Meanwhile, we have all these bills that are going through Parliament. And I think that's something that we just... I, I'm being mindful of more of now that we need to be looking elsewhere to get the real and accurate information. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a great film. It's your directorial debut and you have been longlisted for a BAFTA in the Outstanding Debut for a Director, Writer or Producer category, which is pretty exciting. I'm very excited. I'm so grateful to BAFTA and the BAFTA jury for longlisting our film. And I think it's just indicative of where we are right now in, in society that everybody's aware and alert to these issues that are happening. And I think people are really looking for change, significant change. So hopefully this film will be part of that. We live in hope. There is actually going to be a nationwide Q&A tour for this film so people will be able to see the film in a number of places so can you please tell us where we can find out more information about where we can see the film Sunita yeah so if you go to our website www.hostardocumentary.com on the tickets page you'll find all of the locations where you can find tickets and you can follow us at hostile doc
I don't have personal social media, no, but you can follow me at Galeforce Films and find out what we're up to next. Great. And just out of interest, what are you up to next? Have you got anything else that you're working on at the moment? Yeah, I've just um, started thinking about my second and third film, which I hope to film simultaneously. So one film really takes Hostile to the next level, and it's about systems and the systems that are put in place to restrict all of us, migrant or not. And my other film is deeply relatable to my own family history in India. Well, Sunita, thank you so much for chatting to us. Thank you, Jen. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks. That time of the week where players delayed by rain as we discuss all things women's sport. And I'm sorry, that's not the most desperately upbeat intro, but, well... I've not got the most desperately upbeat stories for you this week if you happen to be a UK listener. If you're Australian, on the other hand, you'll be having a lovely time. Let's head first to actual Australia, Melbourne to be specific, to see what's going on in the Australian Open. I'm never making predictions. Again, apologies to anyone who got carried away with the Emma Raducanu worship after last week's podzine. Despite my unwavering confidence in her winning her second round appearance against Danka Kovinic, she actually lost that match because um, she had a big blister on her hand, which does sound kind of silly, but when you think about it, it's you know fairly integral to have a comfortable hand whilst uh, using a racket in such a way. Anyway, I digress. Andy Murray also went out in the second round. So, yeah, sad times for us. Simona Halep, who I also had quite a bit of faith in, well, she went out in her fourth round match to Czech's notes, Elise Cornet. Yes, the world number 61, who has never before progressed beyond a Grand Slam fourth round. That Elise Cornet, that's who I'm talking about. So look, if you're Australian, you're having a lovely time because top seed and world number one Australian Ashley Barty has just, as I record this, absolutely taken 21st seed Jessica Pagula of the USA apart in their quarter-final match. She beat her 6-2, 6-love, which is, you know, a comprehensive whooping. And she'll now face unseeded Madison Keys, also of the USA, in the semi-finals. It's only the second time Barty has reached the semis in this home Grand Slam. And I don't want to make a prediction because, well... We all know what happens when I do that. What else has Australia got to feel good about? I hear you ask. Well, not the weather, apparently. I said what I said. I'm talking about the slightly damp squib that is the Ashes and the third and final 2020 match between England and Australia's women's teams, which was abandoned due to rain in Adelaide. The second was also abandoned for the same reason. It's a bit of a shame for us, as Australia had won the first by nine wickets, and those two abandoned matches are counted as draws and one point awarded to each side, meaning that Australia now leads 4-2. Besides next play at the end of this week in a one-off test from the 27th to 30th of January with four points up for grabs for the winner, followed by three one-day internationals worth two points a pop. If Australia win the test, the best we can hope for will then be a draw. The situation has led to calls for reserve days in Ashes and World Cups by England captain Heather Knight. They have them in the men's game in case of delays to play. And Knight said in a hotly contested series that might be tight, you don't want the weather to be the main story, do you? I mean, is she even English? But yes, the schedule has been condensed this year, I think, because of Covid and to allow time for necessary quarantines, etc. But it's bonkers to me that they don't have these in women's cricket. Like, if they're getting rained off in Australia, they are definitely getting rained off in England, aren't they? But who cares, right? It's just women after all and they don't get to finish their game fuck it bothered 
finally to netball where England lost to Australia. Yes, Australia again last week in their first ever quad series trophy. The Roses eventually lost by 46 to 58, but had been leading throughout until going into the fourth quarter, one goal up, only to concede 18 goals in 15 minutes. That sounds like quite a lot, right? So congratulations to Australia. What more can I say? And I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, what film did we watch that, despite what you might think, still didn't make my family look any more normal? <laughs> we watched The Royal Tenenbaums, Wes Anderson's third and many believe best film, but we'll get to that. Released in the US in 2001 and here in January 2002. Written by Anderson and Owen Wilson, who had co-written both of Anderson's previous films, Bottle Rocket and Rushmore. It stars Owen's brother Luke, who starred in both those films, as well as Bill Murray, who starred in one of them. It was the third of four Anderson films for Kumar Palana and the second of three for Seymour Cassell, so all systems normal. Well, no. What was different about The Royal Tenenbaums was that it added some serious Hollywood heft to the roster in the form of Gene Hackman, Angelica Houston, Ben Stiller, Gwyneth Paltrow, Danny Glover and Alec Baldwin which may go some way to explaining its box office. The film made a profit of £70 million, meaning it was Anderson's most financially successful film until that title was taken by the Grand Budapest Hotel in 2014. It won Hackman a Golden Globe and Anderson and Wilson an Oscar nod. An Oscar nod? Nob. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, they should give Oscar nobs out. They should. And it has 80% on Rotten Tomatoes. And while it's clearly influenced by other great films, Orson Welles' The Magnificent Ambersons, for example, and in its ruthlessly efficient intro, The Coen Brothers Raising Arizona, it's undoubtedly influential in its own right, directly and indirectly, and you can see that in comedies like Arrested Development and 30 Rock, as well as The Umbrella Academy, which is basically the Royal Tenenbaums with superpowers. It is. There's also a section I've just discovered of the internet that would also say succession. Mm. But Mm. here's the rub. A cinema school poll of audiences only gave the Royal Tenenbaums a C minus and it has, over the last 20 years, gained a reputation as cinematic Marmite. I offer proof of this of two reviews of friends of mine whose opinions I respect. Review A, it's a work of genius. Review B, It's pretentious wank. (laughs) I think both are true. The plot, for those who haven't seen it, Patriarch in Exile and all-round bellend Royal Tenenbaum, (laughs) Hackman, has fallen on hard times. But it's about to get worse as he is thrown out of the hotel he's living in and finds out that his estranged wife, Ethelene, that's Angelica Houston, plans to marry her new partner slash accountant, Henry, that's Danny Glover. Being the devious prick he is, Royal decides to worm his way back into his family's life slash home by telling them he has just months to live. His children, who all show great promise as youngsters but are now, for the want of a better expression, all fucked up, react quite differently to the news. Chaz, played by Stiller, his eldest son, a former business whiz, left obsessed by health and safety after the death of his wife in an accident, is furious. 
Margot, Gwyneth Paltrow, a once promising playwright now enjoying her marriage to Bill Murray's neurologist Riley Sinclair from the vantage point of her bathroom and or the bedroom of childhood friend Eli Cash, Owen Wilson. Well, she's largely indifferent to her dad's return. And Richie, Royal's favourite, played by Luke Wilson, is a former tennis star who couldn't be doing a worse job of hiding the fact that he's in love with his sister if he filled his tent with candles that smell like her vagina. (laughs) He's the only one to care that his dad is on the way out. Except, of course, Royal is not on the way out and it doesn't take long for the lie to unravel. Leaving the question, has all of them living under the same roof for the first time in 20-odd years changed anything? So, let's start with, have you guys seen this before? I have seen it before, yeah. I saw it at the cinema when it first came out 20 years ago. Me too. Where should we start? Where shall we start? I think we need to let Jen know that Alec Baldwin's the narrator. Right. She pulled a funny yeah, little... That's, what, is it? what was yeah, he doing? Yeah, that's face? exactly what I was doing. It does have a barnstorming intro, I think, that first section, that first five minutes. I mentioned Raising Arizona. Not since Raising Arizona, I think, as a film laid out quite so expertly. This is what everybody's entire personality is. I mean, it helps that Wes Anderson uses uniforms, essentially. Mm-hmm. In all his films, be it Jason Schwartzman in Rushmore, that's literally a uniform, that's a school uniform. Ray Fiennes in the Grand Budapest, that's also literally a uniform. So it is established really quickly. Ethelene has a pencil in her hair. That's who she is. And she wears blues. She wears those colours, yeah. I mean, it's incredibly stylised, isn't it? And I think it does remind me of the Coen brothers as well in that it is quite stylised, which isn't a criticism. Actually, I think it looks great. Oh, it looks amazing. Especially the end, the funeral attire is amazing. The matching... Adidas black tracksuits and then Richie with the velour tracksuit zipped up underneath the beige suit amazing Jen I put in the mail out this week that Richie was my favorite and that's because I'm largely like always always like the little weird ones yeah do you have a favorite Tenenbaum it's Royal Royal's my favorite Tenenbaum what he's, so, he's, yeah, he's hilarious. like the character is hilarious he's a bell end but like Jane Hackman is so good as Royal Tenenbaum. And I think of Gene Hackman as someone who makes like more kind of serious films. I, I haven't looked fully at his filmography, but that is just like what comes to mind when I think of him. I think that's fair. Yeah. Cause he's, you know, yeah. And he's in, he's sort of gritty, dirty, yeah. grubby cops and all that. And kind he's of thing, in Mississippi yeah. burning, which is famously the only ever film that's upset me so much that it made me physically sick. He's fucking brilliant in this. I just, I just think Royal is so funny. Everything he does is hilarious. Like the bit where they catch him out and they're like, you don't have stomach cancer. And he's like, yeah, actually, I'm just broken. <laughs> he's just like, there's no, like, he doesn't try and bullshit them further. It's just, he's got no shame. Like, absolutely zero shame. When Ben still freaks out when the kid's got blood on his face. Mm. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, Royal just goes, oh, it's dog's blood. I think there's a line he says as well that absolutely summarises his character when he just goes, can, can a person not be a shit their whole life and then want to change it? I, I think people want to hear about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he apparently didn't really know why, why he's been called in for an audition with this because he was like, I don't really know what I can bring to this role. It's not, it's not really my sort of thing. But going back to what I said at the top, Alec Baldwin said, Jack Donaghy, physically... And the way he talks and his mannerisms, he took entirely from Royal Tenenbaum. The other thing about Royal is that although he is horrible and an absolute prick, he does actually have 
some good intentions. He's like, look at what he's doing to these kids. It's not normal. He's not right. Like, something needs to change in this situation, which, of course, it does. And, all right, I'm not suggesting that his methods are the best way of uh, of countering Dog that. fighting, shoplifting and riding but, you know, <laughs> trash wagons. I do think he comes from a place of, like, sincerity and, like, actually wanting to help them. And he sort of does the same for Margot. He's like, I don't like what you're doing. I don't think you're treating him very nicely. And he recognises that Eli's a prick, which he is. So, you know, I do think there are things about him that are not entirely awful. But he's just... See, that's interesting, because I would say the opposite. I wouldn't say that Eli was a prick. I think Eli's quite sympathetic. Whereas Royal is just irredeemable oh he's not yes I he's think not Royal's sympathetic irredeemable as there's well. nothing he's not sympathetic don't get me wrong i just think he's very entertaining mick you pulled a funny face when i said that about 30 rock yeah i don't think jack's as much of an arsehole but uh, no not in character in speech mannerisms and like mannerisms and physicality and the sort of yeah. kind of sprightliness that gene hackman has in this yeah um, for a man so weighed down he's very light isn't he yeah. royal tenenbaum mm. Yeah, I actually think of everyone in this, it's Ben Stiller that's incredible in this, or it's certainly unexpectedly great. I'm always surprised, because I have seen this several times, and I'm always surprised at how genuinely moving a couple of his lines are. There's a lovely line there at the wedding, and the wedding is just such a brilliant set piece. And he says to Henry, he says, I'm a widower too. And then later outside, when he says to his dad, I've had a hard year, dad. And it's actually brilliant mm. Probably the closest. I mean, maybe he has done actually real drama acting. I don't know. I'm a big Ben Stiller fan. I love Ben Stiller. And you're right. He absolutely brings a lot of sympathy to the character of Chaz. You know, this child prodigy who sued his dad. There's all sorts of things that you might be like, oh, okay. And you just, all you see is a man who is struggling with grief. It's so, so well drawn. Mm. Let's talk about the women. I suppose. Let's talk about Margot. Margot is the acceptable face of Gwyneth Paltrow <laughs> to me. I'm not a big Margot no. fan, I've got to say. I'm not a huge fan of her, but what I'm saying is she's the acceptable face of uh, yeah. Well, yeah, she's good in it. Gwyneth Paltrow yeah. portrays her really yeah. well, yeah. yeah. But I, yeah, no, I totally agree. I'm, I can't really think of anything Gwyneth Paltrow's been in that I'm like, oh, she was brilliant in that, or I really enjoyed mm. that, or whatever, you know. Like, I'm sure, I'm sure she's good enough, you know, but I, I don't particularly warm to her as an actor yeah. but she is good in this and i think with the royal tenenbaums like with, with an let's call it a normal film with a standard sort of film you might have one maybe two eccentric characters mm, yeah. but with a wes anderson film they're all eccentric mm, yeah so how do you rate them how does it not become too much it's such a fine balance and i think for the people who think it is pretentious wank and, and marmite and they don't like marmite it, it's it's just a bit much it's this huge ensemble cast that are all a bit bag of bees and I think it gets the balance just right. Mm, well, they agreed. all have time for their eccentricities to shine and you realise why they're the way they mm. are without them ever being overwhelming and just feeling like ticks. Mm. Yeah, agreed. Because I think that the Grand Budapest Hotel is just awful. <laughs> and oh, I, I really it. like Wes Anderson films, but it's, it's too much. There's got to be like 13 actors I could name in it. You know what I mean, and here's Harvey Keitel for a bit. It's too much. There's too much quirk. It's too much cameo. It's interesting that his next film, it is really funny in parts, but it drives me mad is because it's, it's his next film is its central main character is also a massive prick. 
who has to try and make recompense with his kid, which is the life aquatic. On this occasion, I think that he actually gets it right, the how things get left, how forgiven Royal is, whereas in the life aquatic, I think Steve Zizou gets some resolution that he probably shouldn't get, if that makes sense. Sense. I don't know if you've seen mm-hmm. the life. What well, is quite interesting that has just occurred to me as you said that, Hannah, is that the other Wes Anderson film that I really like is actually a cartoon. It's the Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is sort of also about. Well, it's not a cartoon. A it's it's prick. a it's an animation, yeah. but yeah, it's also about a patriarchal prick who has to like make it up to his kids somehow. Didn't occur yeah. to me. We were talking about this the other day, Mickey. The, the sort of the end message is all our parents are dying. Well, we're all dying, aren't we? The time that we have with our parents is limited because, of course, Hackman dies at the end of this, which you weren't expecting. But I find that, you know, the fact that they leave it, that Chaz has forgiven his dad, Margot hasn't, and Richie didn't really feel like he had much to forgive in the first place, means that it wasn't just this, they were all round his bedside at the end. He hadn't got the forgiveness, perhaps, that he was looking for. Yeah, agreed. And I think the thing that, annoys me about royal is he tries to force it he really does try to force that forgiveness he's very much comes across as a man who thinks you can demand respect rather than Mm. earn it yeah Uh, and maybe a little too close to home with me and my dad there but yeah i think he really forces it and i i'm a bit like i don't think Chaz should have forgiven him but then again maybe that's more about me and my situation i don't know i don't really see it as like he wants their respect i think i think royal is a man who knows who he is and he knows he's a prick i agree with you but i also think he's a man who thinks your kids should respect you purely because you're their father yeah Mm. i would agree with that i don't know i don't know if i agree with that but yeah fair enough you know even the whole like they're called the royal tenenbaums that's very patriarchal it's it's his Mm. name isn't it You've got some level of entitlement to think you can just walk back in a house oh, no, after absolutely. however many years absolutely. and tell people to do this and where's my picture and where's this gone and like this is my get out of my house kind of thing. Whole, the whole thing's utterly ridiculous. They've not He's not lived in that house. They've not been in a relationship for like a really fucking long time. And yeah. He hasn't even seen any yeah. of them for at least three years, it says. And he's yeah. just like, oh, I don't want you to marry that guy. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't want you to be in a relationship you're my with wife, a couple of racial epithets yes. thrown in yeah, for yeah. good measure yeah but on that note like when you said let's talk about the women Margot came up and I think Gwyneth Paltrow got a lot of props she certainly got a lot of over in America like girls dressing as her for mm. Halloween and like uh, Margot it's a good look university student pinup. but Angelica Houston is sublime yeah. in this yeah yep she is I love her. That scene where he says, I'm dying, and she breaks down, and then he goes, shit, she's crying. I'm not dying. And she goes, you bastard. And then he goes, I am dying. (laughs) She comes back. It's so brilliant. Yeah. And they're they're really well-matched as actors, I think. They're such heavyweight actors, aren't they? And to see them in such a gloriously comic scene, it's a delight. Yeah. The other thing that I think is really, really Wes Anderson that really starts to come to the fore in this film is that is is how soundtrack heavy it is. Oh, it's amazing. I think he makes mm-hmm. some really good choices in this. Mm. Um, lots of Great Nico. drops. Yeah. And it's interesting because it is New York and it feels like New York, but there's nothing in it that's recognisably New York, oddly. You know, there's no landmark. But he does pick New York artists, Music. a lot of it, mm. musically. I guess that's part of the sense that Wes Anderson creates worlds that are... They seem, like Jen said, like really ridiculous and yet they are relatable and they could be any of us and they could be anywhere. Yeah. 
Yeah. Except the one about a submarine. Sorry, scratch that. Yeah. <laughs> so I said at the top, some people think this is Wes Anderson's best film. Are you Wes Anderson fans? Have you seen many of them? I wouldn't say I'm like a Wes Anderson fan per se. I haven't seen a lot of the films that you've talked about, but I do really like the Fantastic Mr. Fox. I like the Wes Anderson films that I've seen, but it's not something I get like, oh, there's a new Wes Anderson, mm-hmm. I must see it, which I know a lot of people do. And I get it because once you buy into that style, it's like finding a new favourite artist, isn't it? You, yeah. you you know, music artist, yeah. you really like it. But I've seen Rushmore and it's great. I've seen the Royal Tenenbaums, was pleased to revisit it. I've seen The Life Aquatic, I thought it was all right. And I really, really liked the Grand Budapest Hotel. But I know he's had another one out since then about a train. I haven't seen that. Yeah, there's been a few that have they've come out, and I think if I was a fan, I'd have been like, well, yeah. I'm going to go and see that, and I haven't. So. I, I like Moonrise Kingdom, that's really good. Francis McDormand, Bottle Rocket is good. My favourite is Rushmore. Rushmore's just incredible, I absolutely love it. Because of Bill Murray running, that's all it needs. <laughs> no, it's that bit where uh, where Luke Wilson turns up to dinner, and Jason Schwartzman goes, who's this arsehole? <laughs> out of context that probably doesn't sound that funny but it's hilarious Uh, the Darjeeling Limited is okay but suffers from a bit that's the train one yeah Yeah. suffers a bit too much from quirk but I would say actually I think this probably is his best one not my favourite but I think sort of technically the Royal Tenenbaums is probably the best one Owen Wilson's an interesting character, right? Because when it came up that he co-wrote this, I actually went, oh, and it yeah. hadn't been anything that had registered to me. And I think a bit like with Stiller, I think Owen Wilson is incredible at the, the characters he plays. They're basically always the same character, but he does it very, very well. Yeah. And, you know, maybe more fool me that I, it wouldn't have occurred to me that he had the chops to write something like this and to be co-writer on three of these films. That's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, I did not know Tip that. Tip of the cowboy hat to Owen Wilson. In this, when he crashes that wedding, quite literally crashes that <laughs> wedding, and his shoe comes off, I wondered about what it is that's so intrinsically comical about people having one shoe. I wonder if it, it is naturally one of those really funny things, because also Richie takes a shoe yeah. off during his tennis match, it's really funny. Or I wonder if it stems from Paulie Walnuts only having one shoe, and now it's forever in embedded in my mind. Give me a shoe! Maybe it's also like this subconscious thing. Of, we see loads of solo shoes just out and about and maybe it's like oh that's the kind of time it happens yeah. and there's a little bit of mental maths goes on yeah talking about luke wilson i will say i think he's brilliant in this yeah i can't explain why i love richie but i do because he's definitely weird it's not normal i know they keep saying she's adopted but it's, it's not, not normal. okay <laughs> it's not okay no. it's not quite hot though isn't he oh, sorry to be based hot about in it, this but... yeah mm. let's say it rated or dated Rated. Rated? Yeah, three for three. I am also rated. We've had two quirky films in a row. That's been quite fun. Full of eccentrics. Jenny, you bringing us a load of eccentrics next week? We're going to watch Wayne's World. Excellent. (laughs) Not. Standard issue. For all women.